Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have with us today Ed Casilia. He's taken readers into the home of a family victimized by the nuclear fallout from the Cold War-era nuclear blasts in the Nevada test site in Downwinters, the play. Opened the doors to frightening secrets locked away within a Mormon polygamist called in Pligs. And now walks you backstage to hang out with some of the biggest stars in rock and roll history in It Rocked, Recollections of a Reclusive Rock Critic. The book includes intimate looks at such musical giants as George Harrison, Mick Jagger, Bruce Springsteen, Tom Petty, The Beach Boys, Peter Frampton, Kiss. The list goes on and on. Uh, Ed Casilia, you'll recognize uh, him from his uh, weekly conversations with Kerry uh, Bringhurst on Morning Edition when he was a city editor with the Spectrum newspaper in St. George. He's an acclaimed writer. His work has bridged many aspects of the media world, uh, won numerous awards, and uh, he has worked for such diverse publications as the Los Angeles Times, Los Angeles Herald Examiner, U.S. Uh, or Us Magazine, and Gold, the magazine of the National Hockey League. Ed Casilia, welcome back to uh, Utah Public Radio. Well, it's nice to be back home, Tom. How are you? Oh, doing well. We uh, we miss uh, speaking to you weekly, so it's uh, it's good to have you back on with with this book. Well, it feels good to be back here. So you you've had a, a pretty diverse uh, career, and I hadn't been familiar with some of this uh, in your background. Um, uh, sports writer, I think, and rock critic, and uh, I guess what you call a straight newspaper man. Yeah, um, it's it's been it, it's been a lovely career. It's been a lot of fun doing a, a bunch of different kinds of things, and you know um, that that's one of the nice things about working in the media, as you all know, is that you get to do <clears throat> a variety of things. You never know what's going to pop up and what's going to what what where it's going to lead you next. So I started out as a as a sports writer, and and uh, I had a great time doing all of that, and you know, naturally during the time when when I was breaking into the business, and there there were a lot of great bands and music was what kind of paced us all, and and the opportunity came to to move over from sports to to the entertainment department at the Herald Examiner, and and I jumped at it. By the way, the the Herald Examiner at the time, I don't even know if it's still running, uh, but mm-hmm. uh, it, it was definitely number two. You called the Times the whale, I think. We called the Times the Whale. They had they had uh, the big well the big circulation in town. Yeah, the Examiner uh, finally bit the dust um, back somewhere in the eighties. I'm trying to remember exactly when it was. Uh, it 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 just kind of had a had a problem from from years before. There were some labor disputes and some some things that occurred, and and uh, it never never regained its its circulation, and uh, eventually just kind of went away. But boy, it was sure a fun place to work. And in the meantime, this afforded you, who'd grown up loving music, with, uh, with I, I guess this would be a dream job. Oh, it, it absolutely was. I mean, I was just a tiny little guy when, when Elvis Presley first broke, you know. I mean, I was a little bitty guy, and for some reason I just thought, oh, wow, you know, this guy's cool, and, and was a big Elvis fan. I mean, I can remember the day when, when my parents took me, I was I was so young, um, to see his his first movie, Love Me Tender, and at the very end where he died, I I cried because I thought it was for real. <laughs> yeah, uh, and so you were pretty young. In fact, your uh, parents got you a Mickey Mouse Club guitar. You you wanted a guitar. <laughs> yeah, I wanted a guitar, um, and they they got me this plastic thing, this this untunable four string Mickey Mouse guitar that had a Mickey Mouse Club sticker on the front, and it was kind of shaped like. The guitar that Jimmy Dodd, the the boss Mouseketeer, played on the TV show. Well, there, it, first of all, there were no 
there was no book to tell you how to play it. And second, I immediately peeled off the Mickey Mouse Club decal. <laughs> I would stand in front of the TV plucking these little plastic strings pretending to be Elvis Presley as like just a little bitty guy and it was it was like okay this is this is crazy but it was fun it was you know it was how how we mimicked him i mean and and it was so powerful i mean i you know he touched so many so many souls and minds i mean from from his earliest music on but it it was great i was i was hooked i was hooked from that point on and you you write that uh, for you the day the music died was march 24th 1958 why why is that well that's when that's when Elvis was uh inducted into the US army and you know um I was I was 6 6 and a half years old and I'd been listening to Hound Dog and Love Me Tender and Don't Be Cruel and All Shook Up and all of that sort of thing and I'd really liked it I was oh this is really good really good like it like it like it and all of a sudden he went in the army and he was gone and um it's like okay well what are we going to listen to now, you know, and, and we had Frankie Avalon and we had Bobby this and Frankie that and whoever, and, and it all started sounding the same. And, you know, I was like, Hey, wait a minute, something, something's going on here. This just isn't, this just isn't right. This isn't the Elvis Presley stuff that, that I used to listen to. And, um, my cousins and I were big, big music fans and, and, uh, you know, we we got to talking about, gee, you know, there's just nothing to listen to anymore. We don't like this stuff. You know, Pat Boone might be a really nice guy, but man, this is just not. This isn't rock and roll. And we discovered that because um, I was living, I was I was in St. Louis, Missouri at the time. We discovered that when the sun went down, that radio stations out of Chicago and Memphis would boost up their their signals. Well. We'd sit up with these little things that we called transistor radios late at night and try and dial in whatever stations we could come in on, you know. And and uh, we we discovered these stations in, in Chicago and Memphis, and, and all of a sudden there was another world that opened up because we were hearing um, Little Richard and we were hearing Chuck Berry and we were hearing um, Jerry Lee Lewis because in St. Louis they weren't really playing those guys. Chuck was in jail for 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 some violations and Jerry Lee kind of had been discovered that he was married to a cousin and Little Richard was Little Richard and they didn't play their their music so we went discovering and you know the other the other kind of interesting thing was that um particularly listening to the stations out of Chicago um all of a sudden we started hearing things like Muddy Waters and the Howlin' Wolf you know and 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 John Lee Hooker, and and for a six-year-old kid to suddenly be exposed to the blues and and some of that real gritty, powerful stuff was like, whoa! And we would we we you know we're six, seven-year-old kids, and my cousins and I, and we're talking about, yeah, well, there's this guy named Muddy Waters, and he's really neat, and oh wow! So I I was really fortunate to to have done that because it gave me a heck of a broad background. So when the when the British Invasion came along, and the Beatles, and then you know all of the the blues influence stuff started started hitting uh, the United States. Um, I, I was kind of lucky and had a little bit of a jump on some of that. And that was the foundation, wasn't it? it, it in addition to the British Invasion, which is uh, you know British kids hearing this stuff and then interpreting it how how they would. There were uh, people like Pat Boone who were uh, sort of making this palatable to a, a larger 
wide audience, I suppose. Yeah, um, you know, uh, the the thing is, is that you know, we we I can remember hearing um, from the other stations um, Little Richard's version of Tutti Frutti, and then the local station did Pat Pat Boone's version of it. And um, someday slip those both on back to back and listen to the differences. There's 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 quite a difference in it, you know. But but when the English bands came from um, from from across the sea and and started playing some of that blues based stuff, you know, bands like Cream and um, even you know subsequently Led Zeppelin. I mean, the Animals for crying out loud, uh, playing this this powerful bluesy rootsier type stuff. Um, you know, they they actually seemed in some ways to, to to capture an awful lot of that and put. Of course, there was their spin and their interpretation, but but they they really captured a lot of that essence. You know, and and so it was a marvelous time to be listening. You know, you you, you had the Beatles doing this innovative stuff, and you had the Stones, you know, taking everything Chuck Berry did and turning it inside out and re, reinventing it, and you had. You had the animals doing the scorching blues stuff that was just so powerful, so strong, and so compelling. It was a wonderful time to be uh, to be a music fan. Tell me about uh, you have this. <laughs> in fact, it's the first chapter. You talk about the animals, <clears throat> a concert you yeah. went to, um, and uh, and you have uh, some some uh, young people from uh, Britain. Who you point out, it's it's authentic. Their feelings are very authentic. They uh, they've lived hard scrabble lives. They've lived through the Blitz, uh, World War II. They're trying to present some uh, you know some 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 tremendous some some real blues. And you've got screaming girls who are I guess just uh, just looking at the celebrity side of this. And that's a dynamic I guess that plays out maybe still to this day. Well, um, you know, it, it was it was very strange uh, going to the very first real concert thing that I ever went to um it was it was the animals and you know back in those days um all of the bands were were greeted with screaming girls it kind of happened that way I'm not quite sure exactly what the social or cultural dynamic was behind it all you know but um it was this this giant release this screaming fandom this this hysteria thing there was Beatlemania and Dave Clark Five Mania and Rolling Stones Mania and you know it was all of that sort of thing and and um, you know here you had these these guys particularly in the case of the Animals the band was a very very uh, deep uh, student of of the early blues you know um, House of the Rising Sun was was basically an old blues folk uh, standard and. You know, they took it and turned it around and created the the incredible song that they did, and and they were playing this stuff with a very serious attitude in mind, and and they they almost looked a little bewildered, to be honest with you. You know, they're they're playing and and they're chugging this music out, and it's soulful and it's and it's gut wrenching and it's powerful because you know they they came from 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 going to school, living in in a tattered you know, England that had been had been bombed, and and there were craters and and burned up, crashed up, exploded buildings on their on their route to school every day because it still hadn't been rebuilt, and so they they were struggling out of all of that, and 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 that that kind of translated into the music, you know, this sort of um, desperation, if you will, um, 
we're going to make it out. We're going to grow. We're going to be successful. We're going to escape the the the, the problems of of not having money and and living in a in a place that's torn up. And they're they're being so soulful, so dedicated to their craft, and all of these girls are screaming. And they they did they did in fact look rather bewildered, you know, and and. Um, is they're trying to present the music that was important to them. It, it, well, of course, it eventually turned off the Beatles from touring. You know, um, they they would be on stage and and uh, count down a song, and and the, the the reason that they sounded as good as they did on stage. And I did see them in '66 at Dodger Stadium, and was lucky enough to have a seat close enough to where I could actually hear them. They they played very well. Um, but they couldn't hear themselves. There were no stage monitors. They were playing through those big PA systems that are in the ballparks. And, you know, if you've, if you've watched, like, the World Series games and seen somebody try to sing the anthem where they've got, they're singing the words, and two seconds later the words are coming out through the speaker, that was a pretty difficult task. And the sound systems and things just weren't capable of, of, of providing them with, with the, uh, the, the ability to hear what they were doing. Uh, it was a miracle that they could that they could start and end a song together. Yeah, uh, we're we're talking with Ed Casilia today. He his latest book is "It Rocked: Recollections of a Reclusive Rock Critic." Ed Casilia, uh, for several years, was a rock critic for the Los Angeles Herald Examiner. He's been a sports writer. He's been a newsman. And uh, you're familiar with him uh, from his days at the uh, Spectrum in St. George, where he appeared on the UPR uh, Weekly with the reports from Southern Utah. We're talking about his career in the rock and roll. Very interesting memoir. We'll get into talking about uh, live versus recorded music. Um, and uh, Ed Casilia has a what I'd call a heretical opinion about uh, Led Zeppelin. We'll get into that. Uh, we, uh, we'll get into some, uh, very interesting, bizarre stories as well. Interesting to have you, uh, tell about your interviews with Gordon Lightfoot and Olivia Newton-John for Gold, the magazine of the National Hockey League. Uh, more coming up following a break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering plattered cookies and brownies, sandwiches, and box lunches. Information at crumbbrothers.com. And the Cache Valley Center for the Arts, presenting country singer-songwriter Sherry Austin, featuring music from her latest recording, Circus Girl, in concert at the Bullen Center Carousel Ballroom, June 27 at 7.30. Information at cachearts.org or 435-752-0026. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest today is our old friend Ed Casilia, who's uh, written uh, several books. Um, uh, we've heard him on uh, this program on uh, Plagues, his uh, um, opening the door behind the uh, frightening secrets locked away within the fundamentalist uh, Mormon polygamous cult. He's written a play, Downwinders the Play. He's written for such diverse publications as Us Magazine and uh, the Los Angeles Times, Los Angeles Herald Examiner. That's where he was rock critic. That's the foundation for his latest book, very interesting behind-the-scenes book, It Rocked. It's called Recollections of a Reclusive Rock Critic. Ed Casilli has been city editor for the Spectrum uh, newspaper in St. George. He's also written for uh, Goal, the magazine of the National Hockey League. Ed Casilia, a career like this, I guess, would lead you in some interesting directions. That is certainly true. Uh, I couldn't have predicted this, though, interviewing Gordon Lightfoot for the magazine of the National Hockey League. Tell me about that. 
Well, <clears throat> excuse me, I was the, the beat writer for the uh, examiner covering the L.A. Kings uh, hockey team. And um, Goal Magazine is the magazine that they sell in in the uh, arenas around the country and in Canada. You know, when you go to a game and you buy your program, that's the magazine that you get. And they always have all kinds of content in there where they talk to, you know, different uh, people associated with the game. Well, being located in L.A., you know, we had a lot of people that came and went through there who were not exactly um, – hockey players or executives or whatever we had celebrities i mean it, it, it's it's a very common thing to run into celebrities you know we had jack nicholson who was a big laker fan well we would have the eagles showing up to to watch the the la kings play you know uh particularly glenn fry big hockey fan and uh, gordon lightfoot coming from canada um and and spending most of his time in the, in the Toronto area and, 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 and whatever, was a huge, huge hockey fan. He was friends with a, one of the broadcasters uh, who was a pretty legendary a guy named Jiggs McDonald who had worked with the Kings and the Flames and, and other teams and whatever. And uh, so anyway, he was, he was a huge, huge hockey fan. And so they, they got in touch with me and said, hey, you know, let's, let's see if we can get something a little different in the magazine. So... Um, you know, we understand Gordon Lightfoot comes through town quite frequently, and okay, fine. And Alan Thick, who um, was TV uh, star from um, Growing Pains, I guess the show was, uh, was very close friends with Gordon, and he kind of pulled things together. He was also, and still is, I guess, a, a huge hockey fan. He helped us pull this thing together. So Gordon is getting ready to perform at the Hollywood Bowl, and uh, so that's where we were going to go do the interview you know we go over to go over to the ball and go backstage and walk in and and um here's gordon kind of kind of how i sort of expected he's he's sitting there with with a guitar in hand and you know just kind of warming up and playing some stuff and uh next to him was the largest bottle of whiskey i think i've ever seen in my life and just chugging straight from the bottle I, I i honestly have no idea how he was able to walk out on stage let alone perform but he he did a, an incredible show you know um so i guess it worked okay for him i don't know and and he seemed fairly coherent in doing the interview but he, he was he was actually quite knowledgeable about the game and a big fan and and uh it was interesting and fun to talk to him but um like I said, I was I was amazed that he was able to, to to make it out onto the stage in front of the lights and even remember the words. We're talking with Ed Casilia, whose uh, latest book is It Rocked, Recollections of a Reclusive Rock Critic. Ed Casilia, for several years, was a uh, rock critic for the Los Angeles Herald Examiner. And uh, you name it in the rock world, he's uh, probably met them, uh, written about them, struck up friendships with, with some, including uh, George Harrison. We'll get talking about that. Who, that was gratifying, I could see you, because that was your favorite Beatle. Um, let me read this uh, just a, a bit from, from the book, have you talk about the, the lifestyle. And, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll, that's the, uh, I guess that's the stereotype. This is what you write. I've seen a limo stripped of door handles, chrome mirrors. I've been pinned against the stage in the wrong side of a surging crowd. 
I've dodged projectile vomiting and seen kids laid out cold by chemical concoctions of booze and pills that had far greater effect than sharpening the senses before a concert. And as an occasional barroom guitar player, I've seen my share of guys getting punched out and women flashing the band. But hey, it's rock and roll. Uh, I guess the, <laughs> it's a stereotype that's true, right? It's, it's a hard life. It's a it's a very hard life, you know. Um, one of one of the things uh, the former member of Fleetwood Mac, Bob Welch, once told me, um, delightful man. Uh, he said, you know, we we don't get paid for performing. We do that because we really enjoy it. It's what we do. It's what we love to do. We love to play music and sing. He said, we get paid for traveling. We get paid to go from place A to place B. You know, that's what we get paid to do. Um, it's it's a hard life. I mean, they they live on buses. You know, I mean, even even the big guys go around these days, and they're they're touring on tour buses. Uh, unless you're the Stones, and you can afford your own chartered jet or Zeppelin or whoever, you know. And 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 um, it's it's uh, you're you're a gypsy, you're a troubadour, you're moving from town to town, you know. And um, the the it's a very insular existence you know um people think that that um being on tour is this incredibly great thing what they don't really realize is that they see they see the world from a bus window um they see the inside of a holiday inn and they see the the underside of a big hockey arena where they're preparing to go on stage and that's that's what a lot of the existence is. It's it's you know city to city, and sometimes not really even realizing where where you are when when you're touring like that, you know. And especially the younger guys who are who are doing, you know, one nighters, you know, back to back one nighters. Um, it's a pretty hard existence, and um, so it's 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 tough, and and it's it creates this world uh, where the band has to re- really get along because the only people that are constant in, in that life are the band. You know, you're, you're with them on the road, you're with them in the studio, you're with them in the rehearsal hall. And, uh, you know, that's, that's where a lot of bands end up breaking up because it's just 24-7 and the stresses and the pressures of, putting out product and writing songs and working in the studio, you know, um, can, can get pretty, pretty, pretty intense. So it's, it's a hard, harsh life, you know, the the rewards. Yeah. You can, you can make a lot of money. Um, most don't, uh, but it's a, it's a, it's a tough way to make a living. And uh, so I guess this is where a lot of guys turn to a little, little help. Maybe that's where the drugs and alcohol come in. Well, you know, uh, imagine that you're you're on a bus for eight hours a day, okay? They're not, the, particularly the ones most bands go out on, they're not quite as, as elaborate and nice as, as Willie Nelson's, you know, bus. The, the Honeysuckle Rose is a pretty neat bus. Most of the other ones don't have a whole lot of room in there, and you're sleeping in in somewhat of a cot, you know, that's that's uh, got two of them stacked over each other, you know, like bunk beds along the side of a bus, um, and you're rolling down a highway, and it's bumpy, and it's moving, and it's noisy, and so sleeping's not a really 
easy thing to do as you're traveling from town to town. You get to town, get get something to eat, and of course you have to take care of things like getting clothes washed, and you you know you you get get a meal, and then you get to to the arena and you do a sound check. Sometimes they don't even stay at a hotel in in the town they're performing in. They hit town, get to the arena, you know, uh, do do the sound check, get something to eat, do the show. And as soon as it's over, pack it up and head to the next town. Um, sleeping is a premium, um, you know, boredom. Um, so, yeah, it, it can lead to a lot of things, you know. Um, what, what, what more do they do? They play guitars and find a way to escape from the tedium. Hmm. In fact, you, uh, you text behind the scenes with the Rolling Stones. I was interested that uh, the definition of clean is different than we would use. Keith Richards, at the time, described himself as clean, which uh, which you describe as, as uh, that meant he wasn't mainlining heroin, but he probably yeah, was using some other drugs. Yeah, you know, at, at the time, I can remember it was the uh, Miss You tour, and uh, Keith had been into some mischief in Toronto, as we all recall, and um, was possibly facing a lengthy jail term, you know, and, and he went in and got the cure and, and um, you know, was able to, to quit his heroin use. But, um, you know, along that tour, he and Ronnie Wood used to have bets as to, his, you know, the other guitar player in the Stones would have bets as to who could stay up the, the longest and, and uh, you know, putting down $10,000 to see who could stay up the longest and usually uh it ended up being chemically influenced and and but they were still clean because they weren't doing heroin you know they may have they may have done um oh you know a couple of grams of, of cocaine a day to to stay up and to keep going but they were clean as far as as far as uh the hard drug use was concerned you know and and uh it it created a lot of problems for a lot of a lot of artists along the way you know um became the glamour thing the the cocaine usage at one point was just so tremendous in rock and roll that you know there they were there were plastic surgeons in in Hollywood and Beverly Hills that specialized in in cauterizing or or placing these little um tubes within within their their nostrils because they'd burnt holes through the cartilage in there from from so much abuse wow um yeah, you know, um, Eric Clapton was clean from heroin, but he was a hopeless drunk. You know, um, smoking pot is like, no, it's nothing. Um, it's not even considered doing a drug, um, you know, within the rock and roll circles. It's just kind of a uh, a morning wake-up or whatever. And, uh, you know, it. so it, the, the definitions and the, 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 the lifestyle are sort of foreign to what, you know, what would be considered standard everyday uh, existence. You just joined us. We're talking with Ed Casilia, who you'll recognize from Weekly Conversations on Morning Edition while he was working as city editor with the Spectrum newspaper in St. George. Uh, he has a, a long career as a, a rock critic, and uh, before that as a sports writer. And uh, it's uh, that middle uh, pair that he is uh, treating in the latest book. It's uh, called It Rocked, Recollections of a Reclusive Rock Critic. And uh, you named them, famous uh, rock acts. Uh, Ed Casilia has uh, probably met them and written about them. And uh, he uh, uh, gives us behind-the-scenes look at uh, many of these bands, uh, in the book. If you'd like to join the conversation, uh, guide the conversation to your favorite uh, 
Rock Act. We'd uh, love to uh, do that. Your question or comment to 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us on our uh, email at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com as, as well. Uh, Ed Casilli, I guess there are a lot of different reasons why people, uh, you know, get, get into this lifestyle, which we have described as a, as a pretty hard hard lifestyle. There are some some benefits, of course. Uh, I suppose some get into the for the music. Uh, some I, I want the money and the fame. Uh, what what are some of the reasons that you you've seen? So there sort of some themes. You've met a lot of these artists. Yeah, <clears throat> good question, Tom. Um, you know. Basically, I think I think the primary reason is um, when when the music hits you and it strikes you in a certain way, uh, it it has this resounding effect. It it touches your your heart and your soul, and it it, it prompts moods. It it can lift your spirits. It can make you introspective. It can do a lot of things to you. It can. You know, it, 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 there's a reason they call music, you know, the soundtrack of your of your life. Um, basically, it's from what I gather, most of these guys at heart. You know, yeah, there's the money and and there's there's the fame and there's the adulation and the groupies and the traveling in limos and all of that. That that's a that's a part of it. But I think most of them consider that as kind of perks of the job, if you will. Um, I, I think the, the the key thing that I, I took away from most of the, shall we say, serious musicians is the fact that they love making music and the, the feeling, the, the response of being on a stage, whether it's a club, whether it's a hockey arena, or whether it's a giant football or soccer stadium, and seeing people up and dancing and enjoying what they are doing, I think that is the greatest motivator. You know, there's there's a lot said about, you hear an artist on the stage say, they're, 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 they're getting the energy from the audience, they're, they're picking up the vibe from the crowd, and, you, you know, the, there's, there's a lot of truth to that. You, you, can, you can see the crowd interaction between performers and, and, and the audience. Uh, Springsteen was incredible with that. I mean, he would, he feeds off of his audience and, and they, they energize each other and they react to each other and it enhances his performance, his emotions. It makes the audience as, as those rise, it makes the audience more, emotional and into the music and it just it's just this interchange of 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 emotions and feelings and and it's just it's it's what they get out of it like i said bob waltz said we don't get paid to play you know we do that because we love to play um they get paid to travel so it's that moment on stage if if you hear most of them talk it's they they say it's that moment on stage however long it is that makes it all worthwhile we're talking with Ed Casilia, whose latest book is It Rocked, Recollections of a Reclusive Rock Critic. We'll talk uh, when we come back from a break about George Harrison, a very interesting story about uh, how Ed Casilia and George Harrison met, um, and recorded versus live music. Ed Casilia fell in love with the, with the live experience, the uh, bass guitar thumping off your chest, as, as it were, 
and uh, we'll talk about some of the great live bands versus maybe some of the, the bands who are better recorded. Um, if you have a question or comment, you're welcome to uh, join us. Ed Cusilia, for several years, was rock critic for the Los Angeles Herald-Examiner, and uh, he uh, includes in this book uh, George Harrison, Mick Jagger, uh, Bruce Springsteen, Willie Nelson, Carlos Santana, Dick Clark, uh, Peter Frampton, the list goes on and on. Love to get your question or comment at 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us at upraxis at gmail.com. More with Ed Casilia after the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Festival Opera and Music Theater Noon Tabernacle Concert Series, offering Monday concerts June 9 through August 4 in Logan, featuring instrumental and vocal artists. Information at utahfestival.org. You're listening to Access Utah. We're talking rock and roll on the program today. Ed Casilia, for uh, several years, was a rock critic for the Los Angeles Herald-Examiner. And in that role, and later as a publicist, uh, he had uh, uh, contact with and even struck up friendships with uh, many of the big names in rock and roll. We've been talking about uh, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles uh, and uh, several others. We'll get talking about George Harrison, uh, with whom Ed Casilia uh, struck up a friendship. I'd like to uh, have you compare and contrast a band live versus recorded. Uh, you say you you weren't as impressed as many other people uh, about Led Zeppelin. Are you talking about the live performance? Yes, I, I am. Um, you know, I, I know, as you mentioned earlier, it may be heretical in talking about rock and roll and, and not not thinking of Led Zeppelin as this great rock and roll juggernaut, you know, uh, I, I saw them several times, and um, the thing that was amazing to me was, you know, on record, uh, you get this full, big, great sound and all of this sort of thing. Well, Jimmy Page, the guitar player, you know, he'd he'd played session work many, many. He'd played with Herman's Hermits. He'd played with Tom Jones. He'd played as part of the Yardbirds, you know. Uh, he'd played with a lot of English acts over the years, and produced records. Uh, great studio session guy. The thing that he learned and the thing that he did a lot of, you know, um, was was double tracking, triple tracking. You know, there would be 12 guitar tracks on a Led Zeppelin song. It's impossible for anybody to, to do that live. So you would, you would go and see the band, and, you know, and particularly with that band that had quite a reputation for um, chemical influences and things there it could sometimes be spotty and it really kind of depended on where they were all at when you saw them live you know moments of brilliance moments of pedestrian kind of playing um so you know listening to a led zeppelin album um, was was not is not quite the same as having seen them live uh, they 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 just did not sound the same they didn't perform the same and and that's not to say that that you know going to a concert you want to hear them play it exactly as as they do on the record but there were a lot of holes in in, in my mind at least when you went and saw them you know they were powerful they were charismatic and there were times when jimmy page could rip off an incredible lead guitar lick but there were also down moments so i i was never a huge huge led zeppelin fan we're talking with Ed Casilia. His book is uh, It Rocked, 
Recollections of a Reclusive Rock Critic. And we have a caller, George from Cedar City. George, uh, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Hello, Ed. Hi, I remember when you were out here for the Spectrum for a number of years. Thank you. And it was a while ago. appreciated uh, your work. Um, a friend of mine, uh, Doug Haywood, who was with uh, the Jackson Brown Band for years, has performed here. And, and of course, you wrote about him uh, time ago when he first performed in our area. I'm going actually to see Jackson Brown next week in the Benefit concert in uh, Southern California. Oh, uh, maybe you could show. kind of talk about that L.A. music scene in the early 70s. Uh, the number of artists were in the vanguard there and... Uh, uh, what was that like? Well, you know, um, a lot of them settled in a place called Laurel Canyon. Uh, they called it Laurel Canyon Music. You know, Joni Mitchell was there. Uh, the, the the members of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and sometimes Young, hung out there. Uh, Jackson Brown came out of Orange County and hung out there. You know, Ladies of the Canyon, Joni Mitchell's album was sort of written as a, a bit of a, a tribute to, to that area. It was it was kind of a place where they all lived and they were neighbors and they hung out and they'd get together and and and, and play music. And it, it was it was pretty pretty incredible because, you know, um what came out of that was at a party one time Graham Nash, Stephen Stills and David Crosby ran into each other and just started singing, playing music, you know, some oldies and things and all of a sudden discovered, hey, you know, this sounds kind of nice. Let's see what we can do with this, you know. Uh, and we've seen what they did with that, with, with Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Um, it, it was the kind of musical epicenter of, of L.A. You know, previous previous to that, New York was, was where it came from, the Brill Building, you know, Carol King, um, Neil Diamond, uh, the, the songwriters that came out of New York City. It was it was it was the kind of music capital um, of the United States, and and that's where the business was. That's where it came from, and it was it was a a little bit more urban flavored. Uh, it became more of an East Coast thing as it developed with bands like the Four Seasons and the Young Rascals and some of the Eastern flavored you know Eastern East Coast flavored bands. Well, L.A of course, you know, the endless summer and uh, the beautiful weather and, and the beaches and whatever kind of became a magnet. And a lot of a lot of musicians gravitated there. The, the industry moved there and it became the new place. You know, the Whiskey A Go-Go on, on the Sunset Strip and, and the different clubs that were up and down the, the boulevard there. Um, it's where it's where a lot of bands cut their teeth. Buffalo Springfield, The Doors, you know, uh, you can go on and on. And and it became it became the place for for music in the United States, you know. And 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 a lot of these a lot of these musicians and artists, songwriters, ended up up in Laurel Canyon. It's a beautiful spot up in the hills and uh it it was very secluded and quiet and a place where they could go and play their music and just kind of hang out and be rather undisturbed so the music that came out of there there was a certain energy that that happened you know and and there there was this this cooperative type thing i mean from from peter tork who was one of the monkeys who actually was a very very talented folk musician before long before the TV show, you know, he and David Crosby were, were buddies. Uh, they knew Stephen Stills. Stephen Stills had auditioned to be in the monkeys. They didn't like his hair and teeth. 
in his voice. So he said, "Well, I know this guy." So he sent Peter Torkin to audition, and and you know he he got the gig. It it, it became kind of this co-op thing. It was uh, very communal. It was sharing ideas and sharing music and and very laid back, which which added to some of that that kind of flavor of the music and. And, yeah, there were some great musicians that came through there. Uh, thanks, George. Appreciate that. Um, I want to, before we end, we have about six minutes left, Ed Casilio. I want to have you tell a very interesting story about how you met uh, George Harrison. Um, it it kind of gets into the weirdness of celebrity. <laughs> and This is George Harrison after the Beatles in, I think, uh, Southern California. 1977 in, in, in Southern California. Yeah, and, and he was, was he was into racing, I think. Well, I was still a sports writer at the time, and I was covering the uh, Long Beach Grand Prix Formula One race, which was a fantastic event, but uh, it it was a very lengthy, very time-consuming, very, very tiring thing to to work on because, you know, it goes from early in the morning until the sun goes down, and then you're doing interviews, and you're talking to people, and you're writing stories, and it makes for very, very, very long days. Uh, the the Long Beach Arena, which is down along the shore, uh, is where they had uh, the press area and the pit area. It was filled with the Formula One racing cars and, and drivers and crews, and it had been it had been uh, an incredibly tiring day. And I'm getting ready to to leave, and and I'm walking out the door and going around the the corner of the arena when literally I bumped into this person. I mean, we bumped you know we crashed into each other and i because it, it was dark we didn't see any, any each other or whatever and and i go oh excuse me sorry i didn't see you and i hear this voice say that's okay i didn't see you either you know you okay and i immediately recognized the voice i appeared in the darkness i said george <laughs> hello um and he kind of looked up, and we kind of stepped over to where there was a little more light, and we conducted a little conversation. And, of course, the first thing that takes over is your reporting instincts. And you say, well, you got a couple of minutes. Can we talk? And he said, well, no, I have another commitment that I'm off to. He said, but I'll be here tomorrow, and we can, we can get together then. And I'm thinking, okay. And we shook hands. I said, nice to meet you and all that. And I said, yeah, right, I'm going to run into him among 90,000 other people, and we're going to get an interview. Um, so didn't think much of it, didn't think it would happen. Well, the next day I'm back in the pit area there at the arena and walking through, and I see George with his soon-to-be wife, Olivia, kind of standing over uh, near near one of the open areas, and he kind of waved and smiled, and I, you know, okay, so he remembered, and we walked over and started talking, and, you know, we're doing this interview, and, and uh very pleasant, nice guy answering the questions. We kept it pretty much on the, the racing thing because at that point, you know, they, there was a lot of animosity among the Beatles, and 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 it was it was it wasn't a a Beatles type story. It was running into George at the race, you know, and so we were talking, and we're just about done with the interview when all of a sudden it seemed like reporters from all over the world just kind of fell from the sky. We hadn't really noticed, but there had been a, a crowd of these reporters who, who were covering the race who suddenly were encircling us. And, and, you know, I can certainly understand that because you've got a beetle there. And so we're talking, and these these guys start 
putting microphones and shouting questions and they're going back and forth and trying to interrupt our interview and George was very cordial he realized it was my interview and just was answering questions that I asked and finally we're you know I'm done I've got all that I need and the absurdity is I mean we started out about three feet apart you know just a comfortable conversation going on and by the time we were finishing up we were practically nose to nose and uh, were crushed in by this, this this group of reporters so you know the absurdity absurdity of it hit me and I just started asking him these really stupid questions like teen magazine what's your favorite color is this still blue and those hard candy jelly bean things they used to throw on stage he used to and he looked at me and he had this kind of odd look and then he, he got it he knew that I was putting putting them on you know the people that were there and so he started answering in absurdities as well. And it, it was really kind of funny. It was our in-joke, and these people are thinking that, you know, we're talking about the greatest and most important thing in the world, and we're just having fun with it. And finally, you know, we, we finish up, and I say thanks, and off I go, and off he goes. And I ran into him later, kind of hiding out in the shadows in the arena. And I said, you know what, man, I, I used to think that being a Beatle would be the, the greatest thing in the world. Um, it's not. And he, he looked and he said, this is, this is my life every day. Yeah, that's, uh, I guess that, that sums it up. It's a good place to end. We're, we're just about out of time. The book is It Rocked, Recollections of a Reclusive Rock Critic. The uh, uh, author is Ed Casilia. For several years, he was a rock critic for the Los Angeles Herald-Examiner. And uh, just about anyone you would uh, care to read about is in this book. Very interesting, including uh, you witnessed Ed Casilla temper tantrum by Pete Townsend, uh, and uh, and many other things behind the scenes. You'll have to you have to get the book to to read to to find out about those. Uh, Ed Casilla, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you for having me on, Tom. Good to be back home on UPR with you. Uh, it's it's been great for us too. Uh, and uh, join us tomorrow, of course, for Access Utah. For producers Katie Swain and Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Shakespeare Festival, presenting Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, the story of a damsel in disguise finding love when she least expects it. Information at bard.org. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Bridgerland Audubon Society, USU Extension, and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. Hi, I'm Holly Strand of the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. American paleontologist Roy Chapman Andrews was a frequent visitor to the Gobi Desert. This is how he described being caught in a Gobi Desert dust storm. Seemingly a raging devil stood beside my head with buckets of sand, ready to dash them into my face. After each raging attack, it would draw off for a few moments rest. Then seemingly the storm devil was on us again, clawing, striking, ripping, seeming to roar in fury that any of the tents still stood. Andrews didn't have to go so far to feel the rage of a dust storm. He could have come to western Utah. While we don't have the monstrous storms of the Sahara and the Gobi-Manchurian deserts, the eastern Great Basin, which is essentially western Utah, sits secure on any global list of dust storm hotspots. Let's consider why this is so. First and foremost, western Utah has the dust. 
In scientific terms, dust is any particle, organic or inorganic, that is less than 0.63 microns or smaller in diameter. 0.63 microns is about half the width of a single human hair. In geological terms, think silt or clay. A grain of sand is much larger. If you are the size of a dust particle, then a relatively small puff of wind will release you into the air, and you'll stay there until it's completely calm or rain forces you down. A great place to find geologic dust is in desert playas, for runoff sediments collect in these dry lake depressions. Western Utah has several of these desert dust bins, and satellite data have confirmed that playas such as Severe Dry Lake, Thule Dry Lake, and the Great Salt Lake Desert are major sources of dust plumes. The alluvial fans of the Great Basin Mountains provide an additional source of dust. To get this dust airborne, you need wind, which is also plentiful in western Utah. This region typically experiences strong south and southwesterly winds called Hatu winds. That's Utah spelled backwards. The name was coined by colorful Utah meteorologist Mark Eubank. These Hatu winds blow south to north or to the northwest. They pick up speed and dust as they race along the north-south trending Great Basin ridges. Utah's Hatu winds peak in the spring months with a secondary peak in August-September. These windy freight trains full of dust can hit the populated Wasatch Front, wrecking havoc with air quality and human health. Sometimes raindrops capture dust in the airstream and splat them onto our windshields and windows. These mud rains are most common in spring, and this is why savvy Utahns never bother washing their home windows until June. Thanks to atmospheric scientist Maura Hahnenberger for her help with this Wild About Utah story. For Wild About Utah and the Quinney College of Natural Resources, I'm Holly Strand. Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Bridgerland Audubon Society, USU Extension, and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.